I just want to go out and hang out with my friends and listen to some music and, and laugh and be human. Connect with life just for a moment, just for a moment. Don't criticize me. Don't chastise me. Don't judge me. Just love me. Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. When you're in the thick of caregiving, spending every waking moment thinking about how you can better take care of someone and what else you should be doing day in and day out, how are you supposed to keep up with friends? How do you stay in touch with family? How do you maintain a healthy marriage? Welcome to episode six in our caregiving series. You just heard from Carlos Olivias, a caregiver who cares for his father, giving us a look into the heart of what caregivers need in relationships. I think we can all agree that we all need friends, relationships with friends and family who do what Carlos just described. No one likes to admit it, but when caregiving becomes your life, friendships change. Sure, we all know that relationships change and grow throughout time and experiences, but this kind of change in friendship is expedited in new ways when you're a caregiver. So why does it have to change, and how do caregivers need change in the relationships? This episode is for those of you who want to be friends with a caregiver and want to be better at it. And it's also for caregivers who are too overwhelmed to figure out how to get that sort of connection and fulfillment that we all need. Later, we're going to hear more from Carlos, as well from a mother of a child with special needs, and from a professor of family relationships to learn more about what we can change about how we approach these relationships. But first... I want you to stop and think about a time when you realized you had a lifelong friend. Maybe it was when you were in junior high and you made a friendship bracelet for each other or friendship pins. Do you remember those or is it just me? Any other children of the 80s? Maybe it was in college and you really connected with someone and hung out all the time and really imagined you'd stay in touch and be friends forever. Or maybe you're an adult. You meet someone at a local playgroup or in a neighborhood or at work. or Things just click and you think, oh, this is a friend for life. One of the best parts of these kinds of friendships, no matter how you met, is the connectedness, feeling that you can share through life, through good times and bad, and that you matter to each other. Everyone needs that. Yes, of course I'm talking about friendships, but I'm also talking about the ways relationships tie us to the story of our lives. When you have friends who know different versions of you, what you were like as a kid or a college student or a young professional or when your hair was brown or when you were in a band, the kind of relationships where they're not only invested in you, but in your stories, your children, your life, those relationships remind you of who you are, how you've changed, and why it all matters. When you get a diagnosis, autism, Alzheimer's, ALS, Parkinson's, whatever, and you're facing an unknown future, and you start to imagine what caregiving might be like, one of the first things you want to do is talk to your close friends and family about it, your real relationships. Kara Riska learned early on that she needed to be careful, very intentional, about what her relationships would look like. Here's how she explains it. 
I am fortunate to have a lot of really great long-term friendships. And some of them, I've had to be very intentional on letting them in to my world. And what I mean by that is that it's very, very easy to go around with the belief that they don't get it, they don't understand, Mm -hmm. which then perpetuates the feeling of aloneness. And sometimes it's so hard to let people into that world that don't automatically understand. And that's why it is so great to have communities Mm -hmm. that you're like, I don't have to explain. Like it's easier. We just know it. It's Mm -hmm. so easy. And I think it's important to have other perspectives, to have outside people that do not carry the load and burdens that we do to speak into us, our lives and to be there. And also like, if you just think logistically, if all of my friends are special needs moms or caregiving moms, they don't have a lot to to give, right? Yeah. Like their hands are full. So I have a lot of friends who, of course, everybody has their their burdens and their challenges, but a lot of friends who do not have what I have. And so they have a little bit different capacity and that is a great thing. And I have worked very hard on the gift of receiving to be able to receive that. So I think that being intentional and letting people in and also not expecting all friends to be all things. And what I mean by that is that I now have a wealth of of community that really understand automatically. So I can go to them. Like I have a mom that I, I called the other day because I knew she would understand the specific thing that I was struggling with. And then... I'm thinking about another thing, a mom that has a, a, a wheelchair using child. It sounds like a one funny way to say it, but her child uses a wheelchair. Right. Um, and my son is a, a part-time wheelchair user. And so I called her because I knew she would understand that. And I obviously cannot call my friends who don't have some of those distinct situations to have them understand. And so I don't expect them to be able to understand. I don't expect them to do what they cannot do. And so I think knowing who I can go to for different types of support, for different types of friendship, that I think allows me to love my friends for who they are and family for that matter. I love how realistic Kara is about not expecting all friends to be all things. I can relate to this feeling of when you're in the thick of caregiving and you need help, looking for the right friend to talk about the specific need you have at the time. It's not just about who's closest to you in relationship or proximity. It's who you need, and it transforms who you turn to or rely on. It's not just friendships that change, but also family relationships. I also spoke to Richard Louie. Remember him from episode five? He told me about how caregiving changed his relationship with his father in a way he really didn't see coming. You know, taking care of my dad and feeding him and walking with him, you know, holding him, shaking his hand, hugging him, making sure he was okay at a much higher rate. One thing is, because he had Alzheimer's, is that he would, as you know, forget things. And he had these repeat actions. Mm -hmm. So one thing is he kept on forgetting that he said, I love you. So he'd say it every 15 minutes. Oh, wow. He'd say, you're wonderful. (laughs) I love you, Richard. you're, You're so wonderful. You're the best. And then he would scream with glee and go, yes, 
you're so wonderful. And he'd do it every 15 minutes. <laughs> so if you, you know, if, if that isn't kind of cool, yeah. and, and, and it, it was, you know, very affirming because I knew he did always. But then he liked to start, uh, started to take showers every 15 minutes. Oh. So we had to shut off the water in the shower at home. He would take off all his clothes, walk across the house into the shower, <laughs> turn it on, oh. I realize that the water's been shut off, uh-huh. walk right back out to me. I'm cooking. <laughs> I, I'm not, I don't, you know, not necessarily a good uh, chefer, but I was cooking for them because they couldn't go out and my mom didn't have time to cook. And so my dad would, you know, it happened many times. Here he is, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Oh, shower time, take off my clothes. 85-year-old man walking through the house, goes to the shower, try to turn it on, doesn't happen. He he walks over to me with his pants at his at his ankles, comes over and says, Richard, can you turn it on? I said, I can't do it. Oh, but you have food, Richard, because he loved to eat. Remember yeah. the repeat action. So we want yeah. to eat. And so it, what he did is he would hug me. Because he thought, oh, if I, if I, nice to Richard, he'll give me food. So there was my 85-year-old Chinese-American pastor dad hugging me, going, you're so wonderful. Can I have some food? And he's naked. <laughs> oh. It was just, it was hilarious. It was hilarious what we uh, would go through. And my mom would just laugh. Just, yeah. she'd be right across our small little apartment. She'd be laughing over there in the corner. <laughs> Just like Richard didn't anticipate these kinds of situations or interactions with his father. I mean, how could you? He adjusted as it was all happening. He was just going from one need to the next, bathing and feeding his father, looking out for him. He did what caregiving demanded, and it took him to unexpected places. It doesn't feel intentional. And I think along those same lines, most people do not intentionally separate themselves from their other relationships. In responding to constant demands in the caregiving relationship, other relationships change. I really like how Jeremy Jorgensen, a professor of marriage and family relationships, describes the process of caregiving and that transition that unintentionally isolates the caregiver from other relationships. One of the big transitions that we see when caregivers start out, they're doing things that are called instrumental activities of daily living that are things like paying bills, purchasing groceries, cooking food, cleaning, and those kinds of things. When you transition from those types of care to more personal care like bathing or clothing or brushing teeth or feeding and those kinds of things, the care is much more intense. And so one of the things that caregivers, oftentimes they find themselves, they feel an obligation to provide all of the care. But when you're starting to give those activities of daily living that are personal care, get other people involved. And I would say get other people involved before then. Create a network of care. So you have siblings or adult children or neighbors, friends, sometimes church congregations, sometimes clergy. Get everybody involved that you possibly can and then you're not doing it alone. Caregivers can become isolated. They can become lonely. And oftentimes they start to disregard their own care in terms of sleep, nutrition, exercise, and social activities. I like how Jeremy explains why this happens, and I want to unpack it a little more. No one sets out to say, 
I'm going to get poor nutrition, sleep, no exercise, etc. The constant demands of caregiving are like a domino effect. It goes something like, oh, I'll get you ready for the day. Okay, then you're going to need something to eat. You're going to need to be repositioned, and you need something to drink. And is your temperature right? And then there's the meds, and suddenly it's noon, and you haven't eaten. That line of thinking or events is not uncommon, and there are a million different combinations of it depending on the day. It's the unexpected in the demand of caregiving that's hard to plan for. It's the same truth regarding relationships. He's not talking about intentionally distancing yourself from friends. It's a rational explanation for what just happens when you have all of the responsibilities to care for not only yourself, but another human. There are only so many hours in the day. When you're the primary caregiver, Every added responsibility defaults to you, and that means that those things not necessary for survival, like friendships or family relationships, are the first to go. It's not personal, it's math. And I think it's especially important to note that women are most susceptible. Wives often feel like they have to do everything. And so I would say, uh, how do you convince them? Well, I would just ask them, are you getting the sleep that you need? Are you exercising regularly? Are you getting the food that you need? And do you have some social connections that you're maintaining? And if they're not doing those things, then you could say, well, couldn't you provide better care for your family member if your needs were being met? The unintended but very real isolation that both Richard and Professor Jorgensen talk about reminds me how stabby I would get when people would ask me, How are you? And in my mind, I thought, do you want the real answer or the socially appropriate one? (laughs) And I guess I'm not the only one who thought that. Richard relates and explains it this way. As you know, when you were asked that, as you were caring for your husband and the time after, right? Oh, yeah. How are you doing? And you're thinking, tell me if I'm wrong here. Is this person, as you were intimating, are you ready for this answer? Yeah. Do you really want to know? Yeah. Do you really mean how are you? Because I got some stuff for you if you really mean what you're saying. How (laughs) are you? So what I'm careful about and when I am talking about the topic, I suggest to consider don't say how are you unless you are really willing to listen wholeheartedly. Yeah. And after the last three years, I think how are you has been underlined and bolded and capitalized in more ways than ever, in a good way. Yeah. In a good way. Absolutely. And it's totally fine when we're seeing another person just to say, good to see you. The reaction to how are you is an opportunity for connection, if you really want it. The caregiver can answer honestly if they dare, but the friend asking can make it easier by offering to stop and listen to the real answer. I remember very clearly a time when a friend did this for me. I was going on a quick walk around the block to clear my head. I was worried about taking care of my husband and I was really frustrated. And I was also worried about my kids. They were not doing well and I wasn't sure how to handle it. I was on my distracted power walk (laughs) and a friend rushed over to get my attention. I was not really looking for a friendly interaction. I was really deep in thought. And I was so mentally overwhelmed. Honestly, it really didn't dawn on me to lie when she asked, how are you? I just let it spill out, matter-of-factly, something to the effect of, this is bad, I'm really at a loss as to what to do, (laughs) so on and so on. 
and she listened. She stopped right there and took it all in. And she didn't try to candy coat it or give me any advice. She just looked at me with a lot of compassion, not pity. I, I don't remember. I really don't remember what she said exactly, but I remember that she gave me a kind of pep talk. She said something like, I don't know what you're going through, but you're doing an amazing job. You're doing it. Something to that effect. But what I do remember very clearly is that I didn't feel alone in that moment, world on my shoulders. I felt like God used her to remind me that I wasn't alone in all of this, even though I felt like I was. I felt better after that, and that was a big deal. I still remember that. It was a short interaction, but it really meant a lot to me at that moment. And it all started with, how are you? When you don't know what to do or what you're doing, which is such a huge part of caregiving, being met with tenderness and compassion is such an underrated superpower other people have over us. It can change everything. I love how caregiver Kara Riska talked about how caregivers need to offer that grace and compassion to themselves. Her story reminds us of the power in that. Here's what she had to say. So in the early phases, so prior to even his surgery, we didn't, there was so much we didn't know. So it was really just surviving each day, how to get through to the next day, how to support him in the hospital, how to support my other son, how to support my own body as I was in you know, early pregnancy. And so we didn't know that he mm. would be disabled until he woke up from surgery. And looking back, we didn't even know to the extent then, you know, two-year-old that has behavioral impulse challenges is very different than a 260-pound 14-year-old yeah. in terms of how you can manage that. But when I look back at my early self and those like kind of bringing back to those moments, I don't actually think I was able to grasp on to the impact that it would have on his life and our lives at the time. I think that, you know, we would saw, I saw little things like his visual, well, actually, and I can go back, we didn't know that he was blind in one eye for over a year. Oh, wow. So we ended, We had been doing a lot of different therapies to try to restore vision because we knew that it was impacted. We just didn't know to the extent. So and again, as, I'm, you know, as I said earlier, I think it's God's grace that there was this progression that I didn't have to learn everything in one day that it was like, okay, well, we got through this stage. He's alive. He's well in terms of his, his spirit is here. And... You know, it wasn't until a year later that we had to grieve his vision. Hmm. And so I feel like I wasn't really even able to grasp all of it at one time. I actually remember too, um, we met with his rehab doctor, who was the doctor that kind of managed all of the physical rehabilitation. This was probably a couple months after we were out of the hospital. And when we went into the hospital, my son was walking, you know, like the typical two-year-old. Mm -hmm. And when we left the hospital, he was no longer walking. He had lost the ability to walk. So we were in process of learning to rewalk. And I remember asking her, so when will his walking return to normal? And she very graciously said, well, he's always probably going to have a modified gait. And I look back and I think, well, duh. <laughs> like, it's so obvious to me now. But I look back and remember that mm. conversation and just realize like how much I really didn't know in the beginning. Um, and I fortunately have done a lot of personal work to be able to have such grace and, grace and compassion on that 
person who I was way back then that yeah. just didn't have the sk- skills, the knowledge, the understanding that I do now. What Kara has identified is something interesting about the ways caregivers are expected to operate in the world, in society, the same as before, as if everything is the same, when it's clearly not. It leaves the caregiver feeling more disconnected because it feels like you're acting. I had this experience a lot. I would have just come home from a meeting about something like getting my husband a feeding tube or having had just talked to one of my kids who hated everything, and I'd run into a friend as I'm still processing, oh, this is your life now, and they'd say, how are you? And I'd tell them the facts, thinking I was being so great for being true and honest, and they'd laugh because they thought it was a joke. And I get it. This is what I get for establishing a career on making dumb jokes, you know, working as an improv comedian. I mean, when you're putting ridiculous videos out online and making comedic commercials and TV shows, people come to expect that that's what you always do. And honestly, the details did sound really bad. Like, I did make them up. So, pro tip, when someone asks you, how are you, don't just say, just avoiding getting stuck in the dark, endless abyss that lays before me and reevaluating all of my life choices that brought me to this point in space and time. It is indeed, dear listeners, too much for grocery store greetings. So, <laughs> offering grace and compassion on yourself when you feel too much and for others when they don't know what to say or do is key. I like the way Kara describes showing up in the world as a way to reframe how we approach our relationships. We talked about this in episode two, and I want to point it out again because I think it's a great way to talk to ourselves as caregivers when we're going through a particularly rough time. It's a way to acknowledge to yourself that you are worthy of compassion and a break from some of the ideals we all want or the life we want when it's just not possible. Kara talks about this in terms of business not as usual. Here's how she explains it. So what I do and what I encourage my clients to do is to declare a business not as usual. Wow. To recognize this is not a normal time. This is a time of intense caregiving. This is not a time where I can just pretend like everything is normal. And to put a time parameter on it, meaning that you give yourself a timeline, but also with the expectation when you reach the end of that timeline, you will redeclare. So what that could look like, right? So for my son, uh, you know, we headed into a surgery. Um, We were expecting that he was going to be in the hospital for a week. It turned into three weeks. So what that could have looked like is, okay, if he's going to have surgery on a Monday, I will declare a business on his usual probably for the whole month, if I was honest. And there's very distinct stages that I would see. Um, The first one being what I call stunned survival, where it's like we're just surviving. And so to answer the question of how did I handle that change is I think for a long time, I just survived. And again, I mentioned earlier, like your body and brain are are designed to do this. So I don't have a lot of memories from certain, mm-hmm. like like the first year of my my third son's life. I don't remember a ton, and so I can you know I grieve that a little bit because that is really sad. But I also consider it God's grace because I'm like, well, I got through it, and I look back and you know we're laughing. I'm like, I don't I don't know how I did some yeah. of that stuff. Um, so I think that first stage is like just surviving. 
Each of the caregivers and experts that we've heard from today talked to me about how, in caregiving, there is constant change. As life changes, relationships inevitably change. One of the hardest but not unique experience caregivers have is looking up from their lives and realizing that some of their relationships have changed in good and bad ways, and some are non-existent. However, that plasticity can work in our favor too. Relationships can heal, they can grow in their depth and maturity, and they can be stronger on the other side. You may remember Rach Wilson, relationship coach and mother of four, who shared her story of experiencing burnout with her husband in episode five. She had an intense caregiving experience with her two young kids, and it transformed her relationship with her husband. I love the hope she shares about how, yes, relationships change, but you can rebuild. Oh, look, every phase has an ending. It may be years, but it always has an ending. And it's finding ways, it's kind of approach it like you're in a marathon rather than a sprint, which is what we came unstuck with because we thought, oh, any moment now, he's gonna, we're going to resolve it. We're going to change his diet and it's going to be magically fixed. That wasn't the case. When we started to look at it as a marathon and go, right, what can we put in place? Because this might be our life for the next year, two years. We don't know. What can we put in place for ourselves personally, for ourselves as a relationship? You know, what can we do that is almost like a survival plan? create a survival plan. And it's little things like the things that I said, making a point to just physical affection, just taking those moments of presence, just giving those moments of let's just check in, five minutes of being able to download, you know, how are you really feeling? Like that helps even if it's all crap stuff. Just being having someone who will listen to you, your partner is your your teammate. How can you create work as a team? Um, have compassion for yourself and for your your partner who under extreme circumstances is never going to be their best version of themselves. You aren't, they aren't. Um, Mishaps and misunderstandings are going to happen. But if you can apologize quickly and say, right, what can we do differently? How can we get through this differently? What supports can we bring in? Like really lean on all the supports. Like I was not not very good at reaching out for support or getting help. I was a lone wolf, like, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. Well, no, (laughs) God made sure I got to a point where I I couldn't do it and I had to lean on my friends. I had to ask for support. I had to ask for help. So use all the supports you possibly can. And then when you get to the end of your hell year, your death valley, whatever that is, you have to then focus on, well, remember what your relationship was like when you were first together. Use that as your yardstick and go, well, what do we used to do that we aren't doing now? Let's do more of that and start moving in that direction. So that becomes the goal. You may not ever get back there, but if you're making a a progress towards that, you can rebuild your relationship so that it does feel much more solid. You can repair the damage of, you know, the the stressed out conversations and the mishaps and and the fights because you are both too tired and misunderstanding each other. You can repair it. Um, And most of all, just take each day as it comes. Like even if you can take five minutes out at the beach or just stop and close your eyes and just take a few breaths, the more times you can stop and breathe, the easier it will be on your body, on your nervous system to get through. And I don't expect you to remember any of that if you're currently in your hell year because that's a lot to remember. But it's the little things. At the beginning of this episode, Kara talked about using grace and compassion to move through transitions in relationships. And I've thought of that 
as I've thought of friendships that I've lost when I was too busy, too distracted to maintain some. And because they didn't want it either, for whatever reason. But what has rung true throughout each of the stories that we've heard is that we need to have grace and compassion throughout the entire caregiving experience for those who may not show up in the way we thought they would, but also, and maybe most importantly, for ourselves. Sometimes connections will weather the storms of caregiving, and some won't, even if we were to do absolutely everything right. If we're trying our best, loving those around us who are trying their best, and recognizing that the caregiving work that we're doing is a sacred and beautiful, but painful and unforgiving task, we can hold the right kind of compassion necessary to maintain the fulfilling connections that we crave and need. They just might look a little different than we had hoped. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio. The show is hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark, and this episode was produced by McKay Menden, Becca Hurley, and Blake Morse, with additional help from Avery Stonely and Michael Combs. Music and post production was done by Gracie Davis and Josh Fouts. Make sure you check out the Lisa Show's Council of Moms series on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts, where Lisa and a rotating cast of moms answers questions submitted by listeners like you. 